Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Bucky. Praise God. If you want to get your Bibles out and open them up to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17 we're in today. We've been working through a study of Mark's Gospel now for a number of weeks uh, in tandem with our new study on prayer, which we're walking through the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. So it's great to be in two Gospels, ducking in and out every week, and I trust you're being edified and built up by this study through Mark's Gospel. So I'm going to begin reading from the uh, ESV in a moment from verse 13 through 17. I'm just going to, to pray and then, and then we'll begin. Holy Spirit, I recognize that there's nothing that I can do as a, as a man to persuade somebody to believe in Christ or to, to change or to repent. All of that work is, is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, before we begin diving into the Word to hear what you are saying today, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would touch heart in the room today and also through the live stream. We pray that, Lord, ears would be opened. We pray even that we would see people's hearts transformed today through this Word. And, Lord, I pray you would give me the ability to preach your word as it is, as, as Paul encouraged Timothy, preach the word, be ready. I pray that you would help me not to stand in the way or to preach any of my pet doctrines or ideas, but simply to preach your word as it is in all of its glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when we come to church, when we gather together on a Sunday, um, I've heard it described like this. It's a conversation. That's what it is. It's a to and fro. There's a dialogue happening between God and his people. And that's the beauty of church. So when we worship, that's us talking to God, right? When we hear the word preached, that's God speaking to us. And then afterwards, we will pray. And that is us speaking to God. And then we will worship. You see that there's a conversation happening, isn't there? And this is the part in the service where we are the receivers of God's word to us. You know, many times um, I've heard it said, you know, I feel I have a word from the Lord for you today or what have you. But the fact of the matter is I really do have a word from the Lord for you today because it's from the Bible. Amen. That's what we do in this church. We go verse by verse. And in so doing, you really are hearing the Word of God for you today, the infallible Word of God, not a Word of God constructed by me. <laughs> you don't want that. You want God's Word. So we're going to start from verse 13 and read through to verse 17. I'm in the ESV. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Yeah, I think that this passage of Scripture is one of the most wonderful passages in the whole of Scripture. You know, at least I find it personally to be one of the most wonderful and powerful passages. You know, for a long time, I have to be honest, I struggled with it. It was a passage that I, I really struggled to connect with, and particularly verse 17 where Jesus says, you know, I, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. I struggled with it because as a kid and as a teenager, being raised in Sunday school in church, like many of you will have been, I was taught that God taught us through the Bible to love righteousness and to be holy even as he is holy. So why was Jesus then coming for people who rejected that? Why was he coming for people who rejected his word and his decrees about what is righteous? And I used to think to myself as a kid, well, well does this mean that I have to be like worse? Does this mean I need to be more of a reprobate, uh, be more of a sinner? Do I need to have one of those testimonies you know, that's like, yeah, I was a crack addict, and now, you know, like, I don't have that. You know, I'm just a schoolboy from Wolverhampton. I'm not particularly naughty. Uh, perhaps I need to be naughtier. Perhaps I, shh. Perhaps I need to be naughtier, you know. Should we go out and commit some sin so that Jesus won't reject us? You know, I just couldn't really connect with it. And I know that sounds absurd, but, and I knew it couldn't be the real meaning of what Jesus was saying, but that kind of confusion, it, it prevented me from finding the comfort and the joy that really his words do provide here. I don't know about you, whether you've ever felt that same way, where, where God has given you sudden revelation on a passage of scripture that you just had never seen it before, that you'd been confused about, and all of a sudden you're able then to receive the comfort and the joy of those words, whereas before you'd found them strange and confusing. And this is why I think studying the Bible, studying Scripture is so, so important. It's reading it for yourself, listening to somebody preach it through verse by verse, actually going to commentaries to check out if what Pastor Graham says is true. Please do that. Be a Berean. This is what Paul wrote about and, well, Acts writes about in the Bereans checking out what the Apostle Paul said in Scripture. We must do this, brothers and sisters. And I find that when we do that, all the time praying that God might open our eyes to what we're reading, there is an infinite supply of comfort and joy locked up in the pages of your Bible. And these encouragements are accessible to the Christian who will persevere. That's the word, to the Christian who will persevere to find them. You know? I think it's all well and good meditating on the promises of God and having a verse for the day. I do those things, but there are certain deep revelations of Scripture that will only be mined by Christians that don't stop until they get them. 
and who were particular about finding the true meaning of the text. And so this is one text for me where I felt the Lord do this, where he opened my eyes to the true meaning of it. This passage, verse 13 to 17, is actually very similar. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago. It's very similar to the passage in chapter 1 of Mark, where Jesus calls Simon, who would go on to be called Peter, his brother Andrew, and James and John. We find him in that chapter, don't we, walking beside the sea and then calling them to follow him. He then goes on, doesn't he, to Simon and Andrew's house, and he heals uh, Simon Andrew's uh, mother-in-law. Again, we find him walking beside the Sea of Galilee. We find him teaching crowds. And then we find him calling Levi, who's a tax collector, to come and follow him. And he follows Levi on to his house, where there's a banquet. And Jesus, we hear, reclines at table with tax collectors and many sinners. Jesus' calling of Levi and his subsequent dispute with the scribes that we read about is also recorded in two of the other Gospels, which is important for you to know. The Gospels are four independent witness records of the life of Jesus, so they overlap many times. And so in, in uh, Matthew, which was written by Levi, uh, in chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, you'll read this story. And also in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And I find it interesting that Matthew, who is Levite, he has another name, um, Matthew in his gospel adds a little bit of information that we don't find in Mark. And he adds this information. He, he doesn't just write that Jesus reclined at table with him. He says, I prepared a great feast for Jesus. I love that. Just a little bit of information that he felt we, 2,000 years later, would need to know, you know. I prepared a great feast for Jesus. Bit of autobiographical content, and I love that that happens in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, he doesn't fail to miss out that he beats Peter in a foot race to the empty tomb, does he? You know, <laughs> he's got to get in there. But anyway, back to Mark's Gospel again. So, Mark's gospel, of course, is known as a gospel of action. I, I think I told you there's a, a Greek particle, a little word that you see over and over and over again, and that's the Greek word euthis, which means immediately. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is a man of action, so it follows his activity, and, and here again we find Jesus in action. His ministry is really starting to gather momentum. And as he's out walking beside the sea, we're told that the whole crowd came to him and he was teaching them. And it's at this moment, as he's got a huge gaggle of people around him and he's teaching them, it's at this moment that we're told Jesus stops in his tracks. He stops in his tracks and he fixes his gaze upon the tax booth. Tax booths were set up in cities in towns, in certain regions in the area, whereby somebody who had chosen themselves to be a tax collector, the Romans didn't tell people to be tax collectors, people would actually bid for the job of being a tax collector. So these tax booths would be set up, and this is where the tax collector would sit, and if he saw anyone coming in to fish, he'd make sure they paid the taxes, and he'd make sure, usually, that he took a nice cut for himself. 
So we see that Jesus stops. He stops his teaching. He fixes his gaze on this tax booth by the sea. And you can imagine maybe what the, what the crowd might have been thinking at this moment. What kind of designs might they have had in their minds? What kinds of things would they have wanted Jesus to say to that man sat in the booth? As I said, tax collectors were the turncoats of Jewish society. They, they can properly be prepared, uh, prepared, properly be compared to the people who would be double agents and report on their friends to the Nazis or to the communists. These were the turncoats of Jewish society. They were Roman sympathizers. Very often they were extortioners and swindlers, and they were generally hated by everybody. In fact, one commentator says that in the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are other Jewish writings, there are scathing judgments of tax collectors. They were lumped together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge, as a witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue, and they were a cause of disgrace to their family. In fact, the touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Imagine that. It rendered a house unclean. Now, fix that with the fact that Jesus then goes to a house of a tax collector to eat with them. So then we can see a little bit about what these scribes of the Pharisees must have been thinking about Jesus. So Jesus stops, fixes his gaze on the tax booth, and begins to move in that direction. What is about to happen here? Is Jesus about to excoriate the man in the booth? Is he about to make an example of him? I wonder what would have Levi been thinking as he sees Jesus approaching with the crowd in tow. I wonder if he was bracing himself, you know, bracing himself for humiliation. Was he, was he going to get told who he really was? Was he going to get made an example of? What was Jesus about to do? And then came the words that I think Levi probably least expected. Follow me. Follow me. I want you to, for a moment, just to put yourself in Levi's place. Put yourself in his position. Here you are, literally sat in your place of sin. That's what Levi was doing. He, he was sat in his place of dishonor and shame and sin sat there in the tax booth. I want you to imagine yourself there, sat in your sins, caught red-handed in your worst moment. Because that's what Levi was, that was his worst moment, wasn't it? That's Levi at his worst, in his tax booth, as a tax collector, doing what is despised by all of the Jews, a Jewish turncoat, and here, is Jesus, Son of God, King of the Jews, approaching. Put yourself in that position. Jesus fixes his gaze on you. 
And this isn't just any religious zealot. It's not just any preacher. This is the Son of God. This is the one who never sinned. This is the one who Levi has heard about, you know. This is the one who was healing lepers, casting out demons. And now here he comes. And you're in your worst moment. Close your eyes a moment, if you would. Jesus approaches you now in your worst moment. You know what that moment is. You know that place where you just won't, you don't want Jesus to see you in. You at your worst, and now here he comes. He fixes his gaze upon you. He sees you. His eyes take you in, and they know you in a wonderful way, but also in an awful kind of way. He sees everything. He sees all of you. But the words that come out from his mouth are, follow me. That's the wonder of the gospel. That is the wonder of the gospel. That Christ sees you at your worst. He sees everything. He sees the things you will not let others see. He sees the things that you try to deny about yourself. And yes, he's the sinless son of God. He's the only one that could rightfully damn you to hell for your sins. And yet, the words that come from his mouth are grace and love and acceptance and honor. Honor? Follow me. That's the wonder of the gospel of grace, brothers and sisters. God chose to save sinners you're a sinner. But God said, follow me. He chose to save sinners not because of anything in them. Not because of any potential good locked up in their hearts. Not because there was something about them that was so attractive or so valuable or so worthful. But because he wanted to. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5 says this. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What had you done to approve yourself to God before the foundation of the world? Nothing. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons of through Jesus Christ, according to whose will? According to the purpose of His will. Hallelujah. Calvin said this, this publican or tax collector who followed an occupation little esteemed and involved in many abuses was selected for reasons that he might be an example of Christ's undeserved goodness and might show in his person that the calling of all of us depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his pure kindness. Jesus is pure kindness. 
He sees you in your shame. He sees you at your worst. And yet, his words to you are pure kindness. Hallelujah. Moreover, Jesus doesn't just say to Levi, follow me. But he follows Levi back to his own house. And he sits with Levi. He chills with Levi. It's literally what's happening. The Greek word, I think in the, some versions it says Jesus sat for dinner with Levi. But in fact, the Greek says, no, he lay down. He, he was lying, reclining at table with Levi in his own house, enjoying his company. And it's at this point that the scribes come looking again for Jesus. And they find him and his disciples enjoying a feast as we're told by Matthew, a great feast. He's reclining with lots of tax collectors and sinners. What I love about the fact that he's reclining at table, right? That that's, I've told that to you, and you might think, well, so what? You know, that's what they did back in that day. Well, the fact that Jesus is reclining tells us what? It tells us that he was relaxed. He's enjoying himself. He's not there stood on a podium preaching to them. He's reclining with them at table. We aren't told that he's healing anybody. We're not told that he's telling anybody right, you know, right there, you need to repent of that sin. You know, I, I came to you and asked you to follow me, but, but I, I won't sit and eat one morsel with you until you repent. He doesn't, we don't find that. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but we don't get told about it. He's reclining at table sharing food with them, chatting and genuinely enjoying their company. I think that's what offended the scribes so much. Has this ever struck you? I mean, this, this, is, this struck me when I read this passage. It's, it's simply this. Jesus is comfortable in the presence of sinners. He's comfortable. And they were comfortable with him. You know, sometimes I can struggle, I don't know about you, I can struggle with the thought that Jesus maybe sees me sometimes as a bit of an inconvenience, you know? Like, oh, it's Graham again, flipping heck. How many times I have to forgive this guy? He's here again. Sort your life out, mate. Do you know what I mean? Like that's sometimes how I feel Jesus views me as a bit of an inconvenience. Maybe he's got better things to do than sort of be there listening to my griping and my, my repenting. Or that he's ashamed of me, that we've let him down, you know, one too many times. Do you ever get that feeling like, oh, I've let Jesus down again. I've let him down again, and, and maybe, maybe he's just had enough now. He's just reluctant to be with me. But this passage tells us about a really different Jesus. It's a Jesus who loves to be with us. He enjoys our company. Sometimes I don't even enjoy my own company. But Jesus loves to be with you. He enjoys your company. He's comfortable around you in your sin. Oh my goodness. It's just paradoxical, isn't it? It bends your mind that Jesus would see you in your worst moment, moment of shame, and he He's comfortable around you. He can handle it. He can handle your mess. He can handle your worst days. 
He is comfortable with you, brothers and sisters. He loves you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the same now. He's still the same in heaven. He didn't change. Still full of grace. He's always got time for us. Dane Ortland, um, who wrote a book, I didn't bring it with me today. Um, it's called Gentle and Lowly. Highly recommend it. Really good book. He said this, It's impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed. He also says, No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The scribes, on the other hand, were offended by Jesus' attitude towards these sinners. You can imagine the way they looked at him and his disciples, can't you? Sinners and tax collectors. <laughs> you know, I think we have to get over the fact that this word sinners, right? We, I had thought as a kid and as a teenager, gosh, you know, Jesus came for sinners. Well, you know, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm a church boy. I make, you know, I get detention maybe once and got out of it. You know, I'm not that bad. Jesus seems to like sinners. Gosh. I don't know if I'm one of those. <laughs> I don't think that anymore. But in the Gospels, the term sinners is generally used for people who are considered sinful by the Jewish leaders. So that's everyone, right? Apart from them, of course. And while certainly many of these people were involved in habits and lifestyles and occupations that were unrighteous, it's most probable the label sinners is applied is applied primarily to distinguish between those who were considered pious and those who were not. Okay, so sinners is just everyone who wasn't a Pharisee, basically, in the Bible. The scribes begin complaining to Jesus' disciples, whinging about him again, but it's actually Jesus that comes to answer them himself. He doesn't attempt to defend himself, you notice. He doesn't start backtracking and saying, well, you know, I'm just here for a minute. I was going to tell them to repent in a minute. I promise. Uh, and the other Gospels actually do report that Jesus says, you know, I came to call sinners to repentance. So there is that part of Jesus' ministry. But he doesn't backtrack. He's not embarrassed by being with these sinners. Right? He isn't embarrassed by you. He's not embarrassed by you. The devil wants to tell you that Jesus is embarrassed to be with you. How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you serve in your local church when this is what you get up to? Jesus is ashamed of you. But we don't find Jesus doing that, do we? Not for one minute. He gets to the real heart of the issue, as he always does. You know, we say, don't we, Jesus is so diagnostic in everything that he treats. He always gets to the true diagnosis of any problem. He gets to the real heart of the issue. And the real heart of the issue was not that he had eaten with sinners, but it was this, that the scribes considered themselves not to be sinners. That's the heart of the issue. Truly, here's the fact, Jesus could only ever eat with sinners. There's no one else for him to eat with. <laughs> Dane Ortland said, all of our weaknesses, in fact, all of our life is tainted by sin. Did you know that? If sin were the color blue, 
We don't occasionally say or do something that's blue. All that we say, do, or think has some taint of blue. I think the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize that. The meaning of Jesus' response to the Pharisees, I think, is really caught well by the NLT translation, if you have that. Um, NLT is good because sometimes it, it translates the thoughts behind something that's maybe not literally there in the original languages, but it gets it quite nicely here. And Jesus' quote in verse 17 is translated as this. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. That really nails it right there. The reason I love this scripture so much now, the reason I cherish this, is that I don't think I'm righteous anymore. I don't think I'm righteous. I know I'm a sinner. I've got tons of evidence to tell you that I'm a sinner. Right? And so this passage is great news for me. It's great news for me. Is it good news for you? Is it good news for you? Are you in need of a doctor? You know, I um, was talking with Phoebe and Tilly the other night. We were doing a devotional. And, um, and I, said, I said to them, I said, what, what did Jesus come to heal? And Phoebe said, sin sickness. Just off the bat, and she laughed. And I said, no, baby, you're right. The doctor, Christ, comes to heal sin sick hearts. Have you got sin sickness that you need healing? Or are you strong? Right? I hate this language that's crept into the church. Oh, we're strong. You sound like the Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. Christians are weak, needing to lean on a Savior. I'm not ashamed of that. I need a strong Savior because I'm a weak sinner. Yeah, I'm a saint. I get that. But as the Reformers said, right? We're simultaneously both sinners and saints at the same time. Get your head around that. I need Jesus. I'm not fine on my own. I'm not strong. Do you need Jesus to be your doctor? Will you call on him to come and take care of you today? So draw to a close now. I'm just going to tell you a quick story that might bring this home. I think sometimes with this analogy that Jesus uses as of a doctor, I know that it's true that sometimes we can experience a level of shame with having to go to a doctor for a problem. Particularly when it's a problem that we've sat on for a long time, right? We, I'm not, I'm going to be fine. I don't need to go to the doctor. I'll be fine. And then it gets so bad that one day you have to go. And maybe it's an embarrassing part of your body. It is, oh, Bucky will know all about this. I'm sorry, doc. I'm really sorry. Oh, you know, I'm sorry you've got to you know, help me out. We feel a level of shame and embarrassment about bearing everything to the doctor, don't we? You know, I remember as a 16-year-old, uh, I had an appendicectomy. And something went wrong in the recovery room. I ended up in intensive care and, um, you know, narrowly avoided dying, basically. It was pretty dramatic. Sorry, mum and dad. And um, anyway, (laughs) 
praise God, I, I got through it and I was in a recovery ward, but I was being looked after as a 16-year-old lad, packed full of hormones by these nurses, wonderful nurses who must have been maybe like two, three years older than me. It was the most embarrassing moments of my life because they have to do everything for you. you. You can't go to the toilet. You have to call for a bedpan at all times of the day. It's just horrific. And there was a, there was a big level of shame and embarrassment around that. And I couldn't help feeling like a burden, you know, like couldn't help feeling like I was a problem to these, these nurses. I knew I wasn't. I knew it was their job. But I want you to see this. This is, this is the parallel here. If Jesus is saying he is your doctor, then guess what? It's his job to heal you. It's his job to forgive you of your sins. Even now that you're past the cross, it's his joy to do it. It's actually his purpose. Now I've talked to to Bucky about this before, and we talked about the mindset of a doctor. And he says, there's just a mindset to it. It's my job. I love to do it. I love to help people. And if that's true of him, how much more of Jesus? How much more does he love when you come to him and you say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I've messed up again. If he's your doctor, it's his joy to forgive you. It's his joy to love you. It's his joy to heal you. It's what he does. It's what gives him the deepest sense of fulfillment. You know, this is true, isn't it? If Bucky helps one of his patients to diagnose a problem or to heal them, make them better, it isn't just a benefit to them. It's a benefit to him. He feels a deep sense of satisfaction. The Lord is the same. The Lord is the same. When we come to him in our brokenness, he's like, this is who I am. This is the joy set before me that I get to heal my children. Hallelujah. Let me read this quote to finish with. Mike, could you come back up and just lead us in a final song? And uh, Pete and, and Dave. Dane Alton wrote this. The dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels. The most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves towards, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that today you are here and present every bit as much as you were 2,000 years ago to be doctor to those who are sick to be a saviour to those who know they are sinners. And Lord, we pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see our need of you today. And Lord, if there is anybody listening to this message today who previously has never seen a need for Jesus in their life, that you would open their eyes right now to their desperate need of a saviour, of a doctor to treat their sin sickness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be real with you, to fellowship with you, and to know you as the friend who reclined at table with sinners and tax collectors today. We pray we'd know that Jesus more this week. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to stand, if you're able, and we're going to sing one more worship song now before we close for today.